This episode is brought to you by Dundee Venture Capital. Dundee VC is a premier early stage VC firm located in Omaha, Nebraska. With an amazing portfolio and incredible value to the entrepreneur, Dundee is by far the perfect choice if you're looking to raise capital or become an LP. If you're connected to a startup with huge potential, you'll definitely want to talk to Dundee Venture Capital and Softlayer, an IBM company. If you're an entrepreneur, Softlayer has created an incredible program just for you. It's called Catalyst. Catalyst offers amazing perks to you and your company, including credits to use our servers, mentorship, connections, and marketing support. To find out more, visit softlayer.com slash catalyst. Again, that's softlayer.com slash catalyst to find out more about this amazing program. This week, we discussed the various aspects that VCs look for when investing in a company. We also caught up with Brant Cooper, New York Times bestselling author of The Lean Entrepreneur. In this interview, he brings some amazing insight into corporate innovation and lean entrepreneurship principles. All this and more on this episode of Inside Outside. Running a startup is hard. Running one outside the valley is even harder. Inside Outside is the podcast for inside access to startups outside the valley. Each week, we'll bring you real insights, raw stories, and tactical advice from founders and startup teams around the country. Let's get started. Hey, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Inside Outside. You're looking to startups outside Silicon Valley. My name is Matt Boyd. I'm Brian Harding. Uh, I'm Brian Arger. Got ya. What's up, dudes? <laughs> what a, what a difference a, day, a week makes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's crazy, huh? Craziness. Time flies. It's crazy. Time does fly. Okay, so where, where's everybody at now? I'm still stuck in the basement. <laughs> uh, I'm still in uh, Tennessee, apparently. Nice. I'm in, a, a ba- <laughs> I'm in an abandoned bedroom, so it might sound like I have a little bit of an echo. All right. Yeah. It sounds super cool. creepy, actually. So I got to do so I just, something. I, I got to do something really fun today, and it made me realize how much opportunity there is out there for technology. What is it? There you go. I was waiting <laughs> for that. I got to do jury duty today. Nice. Yeah, that's always fun. Perform my civic duty. It was unbelievable. But like, I went into it with like the right mentality. Like this is going to be slow. It's going to be aggravating. It's going to be all of those things. So I'm just going to like observe and, you know, like, you know, just think of solutions that could help solve certain things. And right off the bat, we show up and they just have a piece of paper where they check your name off. I'm like, well, there's the first thing. So it was a, it was a painfully interesting experience. Um, the case is over, so I'm fine to talk about it. I didn't, I ended up getting knocked out of the very last part of the jury selection, which like <laughs> I was really bummed because the, um, um, I'm not going to give names, but I'll just say the gentleman chose to represent himself, which was amazing. <laughs> And I won't use I won't, I, won't, I won't use his real name. But first, this this woman comes up and she asks all these jury uh, questions. She represents a state. This guy comes up and um, he said, uh, I'll, "I'll just make up his name." Um, he said, "Hi, my name's uh, Jason, and uh, welcome to Jason's case." <laughs> and it was like he like like looked around like yeah, yeah like there's a rim shot and I just busted out laughing and um, then he goes uh, let me let me tell you a little bit about myself and uh, and the judge is like sir come here and reprimands him and he comes back and he goes I guess I'm supposed to ask questions uh, so how many of you uh, believe in God and I was like is this really happening right now and I think because I was laughing I I was asked to yeah uh, you were uh, disqualified not asked to say around. Mm-hmm. yeah but man that process talk about 
like just so much opportunity. And, and I know whenever people get into like medical and, and kind of like government stuff, they shy away. But man, the first kind of group to start cracking into some of that stuff, I think there's a ton of opportunity. Well, we've got the Jumpstart Challenge coming yeah. up in Lincoln. So we, you should get a hold of some of those folks and let them know that they can uh, throw some of those ideas out and have some people Man. do a reverse pitch on that. Yeah, that's why I, I also think it's really important to, you know, uh, go to those things, right? Because there was every opportunity to, you know, get out of that, right? Or, you know, just like the simple things like getting your oil changed or whatever. And I think too many times, sometimes people get caught up in running a business and they avoid those things. But man, talk about just like, getting new points of view on things and kind of taking things that you can apply to your own business. I think that's really important to kind of never stop that process of trying new things. Well, yeah, absolutely. Sounds good. Let's try some uh, new things here. Yeah. So this week we're going to be talking about, um, you know, getting, getting, not only getting the attention of VCs, but what do VCs look for whenever they're thinking about funding your company? Brian, I think that you might have an interesting point of view on that since uh, (laughs) with running in motion. So what are you looking for? Well, that's an interesting thing. We con- constantly are revising that every year based on um, our, our new data points every time that we go through this process. But um, I think, you know, at the end of the day, investors have different criteria and a lot of it's a personal kind of choice. Uh, they have different theses uh, and different reasons for for picking the, the bets uh, that they want to put their chips down on. Um, but having said that, I think there's some pretty common things that most people look at. Uh, you know, obviously... I think at the early stages where we invest, it's really about that individual or the team, um, much more than the specific idea that they're coming into. Right. Yeah, right. absolutely. And I think that goes a long way is really trying to understand like, because at the end of the day, we've talked about this a number of times on the podcast, like the idea d- doesn't really matter. It's the execution of that idea. Right. So you really have to kind of suspend disbelief to a certain extent and say, okay, what's this idea that they're kind of working on? And can they actually, is this the team that can actually um, put that plan into action? Do right. they have some yeah. expertise or something that um, is going to give them the, the opportunity to, to beat everyone else in the market on that idea? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of times, like, you know, looking back on in-motion applications and whatnot, um, you know, it's really important just to see a history of, of kind of building things and, and executing on something. Even if you haven't built, like, a company yet, um, you know, you, you will have gone through the process, hopefully, of you know, building. And I know that the Y Combinator application specifically asks like, what have you, what have you built in the past? Um, it doesn't necessarily even have to be software, but what have you built? What have you, what have you done? Well, and I think it's even harder. Um, I mean, so, I think when, you know, five, six years ago, you probably could have come in with an idea, but now, I mean, it's so easy to build a prototype now. If you don't have at least the prototype of your idea, um, it's really hard to get some traction, I think. Unless right. you're a serial entrepreneur or something that, you know, there's other reasons why they would invest in you. But I mean, it's, it's really easy to get something made. So you've got to make something and then show that as your, your first step, I think. Yeah. And I mean, I think like, you know, traction really is kind of the end all be all. I think that it's, it's becoming like that, but, but, you know, as an entrepreneur, um, you should be striving for traction every single day. So, um, you know, uh, launching with traction, um, and before you raise money, going to VCs with that traction and showing, a, you know, a track record of success or a track record of growth, I think is absolutely key. This episode is brought to you by Dundee Venture Capital. If you're an entrepreneur or looking to invest in startups, you'll definitely want to give Dundee VC a call. We caught up with founder of Dundee Venture Capital, Mark Haysbrook, to hear his thoughts on hiring. I think some advice that we would give is, is try and hire ahead of the curve as well. 
you know, you may be hiring for the next three to six months, but try and hire for the next two years. And, and really think about the engineering and the sales team that you might need. And we love to, to introduce founders to as many resources as we possibly can to try and build out their teams because I totally disagree that there's not talent out here. And you know, if, if you, you hear companies saying, oh my gosh, we gotta leave this area because there's no talent, it's just completely untrue. We're seeing companies like Huddle and Hayneedle and Bulu Box, and they're all attracting and keeping and retaining really talented people and in all aspects from engineering to sales and you name it. So it can be done here and it is being done here. Uh, I would just say, you know, don't be afraid and do step off the curb because the support network in the Midwest is unlike anything I've ever seen anywhere. And now back to the show. I think that the important thing with traction too is defining that. And I think all too many times it's defined as, um, revenue, right. And, um, I think it's important that that can be customer growth. Um, that can be revenue that can be, you know, it might be profit in certain scenarios. And I think that's really important too, to, uh, um, in, important to define what traction means for you and your company and why you're going after those things. Because I think too many times we hear this and we just think sales is traction and it can be a number of different things. And that's important to get on a clear page. And, and one other thought is it's really important too, for the, the startup to, you know, everybody says like, what is a, you know, kind of like the investor selects a startup or what is the investor see in the startup? I think the startup needs to look and understand what they see in that investor. Right. Right. Um, like what, what can they bring to the table? What, why is this the person that's going to, you know, help us out? Um, I'm going to shamelessly plug a startup podcast with Alex Bloomberg, his kind of intermittent or intermediary season, whatever he's calling it. Have you guys been listening to that at all? No, I haven't actually. Oh, man. I've been wanting to. But. It's it's really, really good. Um, if you listen to this podcast, you should most definitely listen to startup podcasts, but um, he's actually raising their second round of capital and they're discussing, you know, why they would or wouldn't go with certain investors and spoiler alert, they end up going with somebody that doesn't have as great as a term sheet as somebody else because they're a better investor so or a better fit. So I think that's always um, interesting. And I think the other thing to point out is, you know, different investors, like you mentioned at the beginning, Matt, you know, what VCs look for, but, you know, angels have different criteria a lot of times than than VCs and and how they measure their success. And that is totally different as well. So um, knowing like who you're pitching to and and why you're going after it, you know, I, I, um, I try to look at other people's thesis and and what they uh, kind of look at investors and Paige Craig from Arena Ventures, he kind of goes through like five questions as an angel investor and now as a VC, what he looks at. And I thought it was really interesting because it's different than just like, hey, what's the problem you're working on and you know, what's the market size? The number one question he asks is, would I start a company with them? And it's yeah. a really interesting thing like, because that investor is saying like, I'm going to be with this company for 10 years. You know, yep. Would I want to start that company with them and be a, be a big role in it? Do I love what they're doing? Uh, will I add value? Can they have a major impact? And is this the right time for the idea? And I think all those questions, those five key questions that he asks really goes a long way to helping you understand both the mindset of the investor as well as what you should be striving for as as a founder. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important. I think it's important to realize that like we're kind of in a stage now, you know, more, more, more so on the coast, but it's probably going to come to the Midwest as well where capital is kind of democratized. So capital is kind of a, a utility now, um, whenever, whenever people are starting a company, but in general, like it's more so, 
all about the fit. It's more so like, you know, can, can the investor specifically add uh, a strategic, a strategic advantage to your company? And if the, if that fit is there, then that's the person you should go with because the capital, you know, the capital is available everywhere. So, um, yeah, I think it's I think it's all about, you know, whether or not the fit is there and whether or not the, the investor can add value and vice versa. Do you guys think that um, uh, what do you think is the difference between what like, let's say Midwest Angels versus Midwest East Coast, West Coast investor? Actually, let's just say West, West Coast. So if you had to put a kind of generalization down, what do you think is the difference between a Midwest Angel and a West Coast Angel right now, uh, kind of currently in the game? Or is there even a difference? I think, well, I, I would, uh, I was going to say, I think my feeling is that it's both risk tolerance and just exposure to different business models. Uh, and so that, that comfortableness, if that's a word, um, with looking at different business models in that in the, in the Valley, you, you do swing for the fences a lot of times with new business models and new things that, um, the investors seem to be more willing to throw, um, things at, at an idea knowing that they just need one in hundred, one in 10 to hit kind of thing, um, that home run, home run kind of thing versus around here, it's much more, uh, I would say, almost traditional investing, um, at least at the early stage. Yeah, and I think um, I think generally it depends on your business, but I think on the West Coast, um, investors are just a little bit more weathered. They, they've been through it uh, time and time again. They've seen every business model out there. The deal flow is much, much higher. Um, so I think that, you know, in, in general, they're, they're looking at uh, the company more from a mathematics standpoint, like Brian's saying. But um, yeah, so I think that, again, going back to the value out of the investor, I think that a lot of times uh, they, can, they can add a lot of value because, you know, a lot of these investors who are partners now, um, they, they've come from being either executives at huge companies or they've started their own companies and exited and been very successful. So, and that's probably the case with Midwestern investors as well. But I think that it's a, probably depending on your business, especially in the high growth sector, I think it's a little more relevant on the West coast. So I think that, yeah, investors are probably a little bit more weathered. What do you think the difference is between a East coast or a West coast and a VC and a Midwest VC, or is it kind of the same generalization? Yeah, personally, again, I think it's probably the the same generalization. I think it's, uh, I think that, you know, Midwest VC in general, Midwest capital has a lot to learn. Uh, And I think that obviously the the coasts haven't figured it out completely, but I think that they've been through it so much longer and and, and time and time again, they've been through the crazy ups and downs and, and, and all that kind of stuff that Silicon Valley scene and whatnot. So I think that, yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, I think that West Coast and East Coast capital and VC specifically is a little bit more advanced. I mean, for an yeah. angel or an or a VC, I mean, it's just a lot of it is just you have to see deal flow. You've got to see um, and, and be in the trenches. Rarely do you come out of the uh, you know out of the gate as an early angel investor and, and you pick one and your first investment you know becomes right. becomes Uber. Right. So I mean, it's a lot of just I mean even with Motion, you know over the course of two and a half years, three years, uh, and what we looked at year one versus how we look at things in year three, year four. Uh, significantly different. I just just have more data points yeah. to take a look at. Yep. Um, what? Okay. So let, let's play a game. You guys have, um, you guys run a VC firm, or let's just say you guys are billionaires. Let's just go with that. Uh, so we're just fast forwarding ten years. Um, ten years from now, when you're billionaires, uh, what characteristics <laughs> or what are you going like specifically? If somebody was pitching you an idea and you're an investor, 
what specifically knowing what you know now, you know, Matt, having started a company, uh, been at startups, um, Brian being at companies that have grown and doing a ton of stuff with in motion and everything like what, what are you guys looking for? If you can boil it down to no more than three things. Um, for me, you want to go first, Brian? For me, I think it's, uh, it has everything to do with my personal ethos, uh, my, my view of the world. Um, so it, it, it really is the, the spaces that I think, uh, based on my kind of product vision for the future, um, where I see the world going and where I see, you know, where I want to contribute in that end. I think that's the first one. Number two is the the very specific product execution and, and and how it ties in with my product sensibilities. I think that if, if I look at the way I see product and the way that I, that I, you know, kind of build product and if, if they're executing in a very similar way that I would do it, um, or in a very similar kind of fashion, not even a similar way that I would do it, but something that I look at and I almost admire. Right, right. Um, I think that's I think that's kind of where I would I would look at. I look at what a, about you, Brian? I think I look at a couple different things. And um, uh, is it Canine Ventures has a, has a different kind of they have a four things that they look at, and I think this is a really good way to look at it as well. And the first thing is like how big is this? Is this what you would? Is this what you would do? Yeah, this is what I've been doing more recently. Is like taking this gotcha. framework and try to apply it apply it to uh, the early stage stuff that we're looking at. But first of all, how, how big is the pain? Like, is this yeah, something yeah, that I, I have I'm, to have? I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to stop you there. Is this like, this is your money. Is this yeah. the way that you would do it? Yes. Because I think, okay. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so how big is the pain? And, and that goes down to like, have they done their customer validation? Have they, how much have they gone out there and actually found out, is this a real pain? And is it a pain that needs to be solved? There's plenty of, you know, headache pains out there that, you might be able to make a decent business, but if you're going to bet on the home run, um, I think you've got to bet on a big pain point. Secondly, how frequent does that pain happen? So it can be a super big pain point, but if, you know, if it only happens one in a million times, it's not going to be enough to, to build a business on. And then, you know, I think the third thing would be how easy is it for this team to create a frictionless way to, to solve that problem? You know, and are they the right team to be able to execute on that? And that's the hardest part, I think, is finding out and understanding and kind of projecting into the future. Is this team the right one, not only to start the, yeah. you know, the thing, yep. but can they pull together the team that's going to need to do it uh, in year two and year three and year four as they scale and grow the company? That's yep. the hardest part. That's a really interesting topic that I, I, I think gets avoided or maybe glazed over. Or I, I don't know, but in the startup world, like, you know, it's interesting because people and teams are everything, right? And I'm curious you know, what's the month that most startups die? Month 18? Is that like the big, like statistically, isn't that the <laughs> month where most startups so, go to sounds die? Sounds right. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I'm curious in month 18, um, how many of the original teams stay beyond that? And I think that's kind of a big, nasty secret that not a lot of um, startups talk about or advertise or whatever, but it's, you know, adver- uh, like uh, they don't advertise or talk about like, you know, co-founders changing, teams changing. And, you know, when it gets in that really nasty part, that month 18, you know, who's going to come out on the other side. And um, that's something that I'm really interested. You know, if the scenario was, um, you know, if I was able to invest, I think that's the very first thing that I would look at is what does this team, um, what do they share in the past or what have they done together or why are they going to succeed as, as a unit, you know, and, and as two or three people really, yep. maybe four. Um, um, I think that's really, really important. And I think it's often kind of looked over and I think it's looked over as like, 
you know, people, investors will say, oh yeah, they went to Harvard, check. Oh yeah, they did this, check. Oh, they did their internship at Amazon, check. You know, they kind of have these check marks for the team, but they're not really looking at the dynamics of the people together. And I think a lot of people miss that. Well, I think a lot of it has to do with, and I think, I mean, the timing of when you make that investment and how much can you dig into that? And and that's why, you know, especially the early stage, especially in competitive um, landscape like Silicon Valley, you don't do a lot of due diligence at the early stages sometimes because, you know, there's a competitiveness to the deal flow or, or things along those lines. The, the more you can do that deal, due diligence and, and have, you know, a longer term relationship with that founder. So maybe you don't make that investment. Um, maybe you start finding and talking to them early on when they're building some stuff and you don't actually right. put your first money in until 12 months down the right. road um, when yep. they're raising. But you have to have I, those I, early I, relationships I, I, to understand and, and see that long play. Yeah, I think, um, you know, there's also the, the you know, like if, if I were to start a VC fund right now or, you know, in the near future or whatever, um, I, I don't I, like similar to kind of the way Rafael uh, Corrales from CRV mm-hmm. was talking about. It's it's more like, you know, the the, um, the the kind of thesis around the the investment strategy would be less on the tangibles, less on the like the check boxes, similar to what Paul was saying, too, and more on the intangible yeah. type stuff like like my vision, my vision, yeah. again, my vision yep. for the future or my, you know, I think that, you know, the best VCs are the ones who are trend pickers. Yep. And a lot of times it's not, it's, it's not like picking stocks where you, you just kind of, you know, you, you hear some insider information or whatever. It's more like you have a, you're very, very in tune with technology and you're very, you're a technologist by heart and you know, product yep. inside and out. And there, there's nothing that, uh, n- nobody can kind of give you a checkbox on that. It's really just kind of your, your personal intuition around. Some of that I think stuff. that kind of goes back to what um, I think that goes kind of back to what Paige Craig was talking about. Like his cr- questions or things that he asks really aren't asking about kind of the business. It's like it's more along the lines like, can I hang with this team? Do I love what they're doing? Can I help them? And yep. if you're all yep. in from that perspective, it's like, yeah, I can I can see myself actually wanting to work and build this company with them. That goes a long way, I think. Yeah. So let's uh, let's wrap this up. Um, what, what are some takeaways that we can give some, uh, you know, the listeners regarding kind of what VCs are looking for in, in, in startups? You know, I'm going to kind of flip that question on its head a little bit. And I'm going to say, um, actually, look at, uh, you, you know, I, I think the number one thing is and we didn't talk about this, but just be yourself like be you. Um, it's hard enough to you know, kind of, uh, do all the things that you need to do and to kind of put on a fake or put on a front, like that's not going to help you in kind of the, you know, um, fundraising or, you know, uh, down the line and, and executive board meetings or whatever. So I think that's the most important thing is like be you and find the right fit. And on the flip side, like look at who's investing and make sure it's really mutually beneficial. And that's easy in theory. Um, and, and, and it's probably, really difficult in execution, but, um, down the road, you know, it'll pay off. And, and I think that's one thing that we really got straight when we started our company. Yeah, I guess my words of advice is just yeah. do the work. Uh, you know, it, uh, it's not easy to get uh, funded nowadays, uh, or anytime for that matter. And, uh, you've got to do the work and you've got to be in there hundred percent all the time. Um, tenacity and, and gumption and, and execution are, are really some of the key differentiators, especially in the early stages. 
Yeah. And I think um, from a VC perspective, whether you're a startup or a VC specifically, I think that uh, it comes down to, to building something with traction, presenting traction um, first. Uh, and I think a lot of times, it, you know, and, and like Paul said, traction isn't necessarily just, you know, uh, sales or profitability or whatever. It could be it could be customer growth. It could be uh, anything that shows that what you're building is is hitting on the audience that you're targeting. I think that's that's super core to the strategy. The large enterprises and the successful established businesses, the risk they have is is really their core business. And, and that can be millions or hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars. This is Brant Cooper, New York Times bestselling author of The Lean Entrepreneur. Today we have Brant Cooper, the co-founder or co-author of The Lean Entrepreneur and many other things. So thanks for coming on, Brant. I'd love to get your uh, perspective on and, and first of all, tell, your, uh, tell the audience a little bit about who you are and, and how you got into this lean startup business. Sure, Brian. Thanks for having me. So, uh, you know, I kind of suffered the, the ups and downs of the dot-com uh, bust and boom. Um, so was in startup, a few startups back in the day, uh, some that did very well, IPO, uh, acquisition, others that were dismal failures, you know, like out of business in six months and then, you know, some in-betweens as well. And Sort of out of that out of that time, especially the bust. You know, there were a bunch of independent uh, initiatives. I guess a, there are a bunch of people trying to figure out. Well, maybe there's a different way of building startups. And the way I kind of describe it is, back in the day, we were really taught startups and small businesses how to act like big enterprises. And uh, I guess the full irony is that now, as large enterprises continue to struggle and be disrupted. Uh, my business is te- teaching large businesses how to act more like startups. Um, <laughs> but so, uh, yeah, so, you know, I started a marketing service in the middle of the 2000s called sales and marketing R&D. And it was to try to bring some of the engineering rigor to the creative side of the house, to the sales and marketing side of the house. And the basic premise was, is that the rigor of engineering means essentially using sort of the scientific method. Uh, learning before executing, using iterative approach to figuring out what works rather than merely pretending you know what works and executing on on that. Um, so I don't know, I was blogging about that in 2008 or so, and somebody turned me on to Steve Blank. And and in turn, I, I heard about Eric Reese. He was just starting to blog about it. And there was a small group of people hanging out on a Google group talking about this stuff and practicing it and implementing it and teaching it and that led to me writing the book, The Entrepreneur's Guide to Customer Development, which was sort of a cheat sheet to the whole lean startup movement. Um, back in 2010, uh, Eric then launched the lean startup, which took this thing, you know, way mainstream. I think that was in 2011. Uh, and then I followed up with the lean entrepreneur, which was 2013. And Eric wrote the forward to that book. The way, the way I sort of describe it is his is the why and, and mine's the how to. So it's a, sort of a deep dive, a dense dive into actually what do we mean when we're talking about building lean startups. So that's how I got into, uh, how I got into it. There basically, you know, a lot of it is serendipity being at the right place at the right time, but there was a bunch of us that were kind of thinking about better ways to build startup. And, uh, and like I, like I alluded to now, we're also thinking about, well, what are the better ways for us to do innovation inside of the large enterprises? And, and that's what my, my company moves the needle uh, is, is up to. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I loved your book, The Lean Entrepreneur, because it was one of the first books out there that kind of gave some of the, the tactics and some real um, nitty gritty case studies of how do you actually execute on this? Because, right. um, I mean, in the Lean Startup, obviously, it's taken a kind of a track of its own. And a lot of people uh, have said they read it. <laughs> and there's a lot of uh, misperceptions about actually how you go about uh, executing on a day to day basis. And so appreciate that as well. well um, so, you know, you mentioned a lot about now that you're kind of moving into this corporate realm. And it's something that uh, we want to talk a little bit more about to our audience because we have, you know, obviously startups that are listening to us, but we have other folks that are looking at either jumping into startups or becoming more entrepreneurial within their own organization. What are some of the biggest, I guess, similarities and differences between kind of startup founders and I guess the corporate founders that are implementing Lean Startup? Yeah, the, the, the biggest differences really are in, in, in the obstacles and the obstacles are related to what do you have to lose? So most startups actually don't have a whole heck of a lot to lose. They've got maybe their own investment, maybe their investor's investment. And, and certainly they, uh, they risk wasting their time and effort and creativity and opportunity cost and all that. And, and I don't want to diminish that, that, but diminish that at all. That's, that's important stuff, but the large enterprises and the successful established businesses, the risk they have is, is really their core business. And, and that can be millions or hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars. And so the company naturally forms uh, resistance to change and resistance to, you know, outside forces that might put at risk that, that core business. And it's, you know, you can, the common analogy is that they develop antibodies that fight anything that might put, <laughs> yeah, might put it, that core business at risk. The problem is, is that those antibodies attack innovation as well. And innovation is what's going to allow that, that enterprise to last long-term. Um, and so, you know, I find that every organization we work with has great ideas and they have entrepreneurial minded people. Um, it's just, they don't know how to prioritize the ideas and they don't, and the entrepreneurs themselves, the internal entrepreneurs have a tough time trying to figure out how you overcome those obstacles. And so those are the things that we end up, we end up, uh, uh, helping them with the actual work. It's very similar. The actual work that needs to be done in a corporate version of lean startup is, is pretty much the same as the, as what you face inside of a, a startup. Um, and it's just that the obstacles and the environment is what's really different. Yeah. What I found is the, the, the kind of the baggage is different. Uh, the kind of the assumptions and some of that, that comes to play, whether you're in the corporate environment or startup environment, um, the assumptions you bring to the table are different sometimes. Yeah, totally. So what are some of the uh, key trends that you're seeing? You know, obviously you're seeing more and more and I'm getting pinged as well as a, you know, accelerator director uh, by corporations saying, Hey, how do I get this startup juice? How do, how do I, uh, kind of move and think and, and act more like a startup. So what are some of the trends that you're seeing in that particular space, specifically as it relates to corporate innovation? Yeah, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's really all across the chart. I mean, so you've got, uh, you've got large enterprises with, uh, with venture arms. Uh, you've got uh, them trying to create their own internal accelerator programs, uh, incubator programs, You've got others that believe that philosophically everybody in the organization needs to learn some set of entrepreneurial skills um, because, you know, we talk innovation, but a lot of these companies are really just trying to 
learn how to compete better in their existing markets. And so that it's not really like breakthrough or earth shattering innovation. Um, but truth be told, most startups aren't really that breakthrough either. Um, but so there's this, you know, there's a number of ways that the large enterprise is going to find entrepreneurial people and, and adopt technology that's, um, that perhaps, you know, is more innovative than what they're building internally. Um, I think that the trend that we're seeing that benefits moves the needle quite a bit is that there are more and more of these companies that really want to build the capabilities in-house. And, and that's what we do. And that's what we help them with. And we try to help them, uh, you know, we develop the trainers inside. We, we help them educate. We, uh, the processes, we help them, uh, you know, develop new leadership skills, how to mentor, not just manage. Um, how do you start transforming the culture so that, uh, anybody inside the organization to can discover and create new value for customers. And we really believe that that's, that's really the objective is these organizations have to get away from uh, merely cutting costs or incrementally improving revenues by, um, by executing harder or, uh, uh, or just trying to create wealth as opposed to focusing on understanding the customers deeply and, and discovering ways that they can create new value. Right. Are you seeing, um, you know, I, I read, you know, Procter & Gamble talking about innovation and they're saying that 50% of their uh, innovation is going to have to come from outside. So they're looking more and more to the startup landscape for acquisition and, and new ideas from that perspective. Well, are you seeing this kind of um, internal, external, inside, outside um, innovation camp, even within the corporate well, I, again, I, I think most companies will do a combination of those things. So I don't know where Procter & Gamble got that number. It seems really pretty high to me. Maybe, you know, Procter & Gamble has always been a pretty customer focused business. And maybe they're just mm -hmm. saying that uh, that they can't, uh, you know, they can't do the more uh, breakthrough. I think that's uh, my problem with that strategy is, is that you you're buying the technology, but probably not the people. So if you don't really change your internal culture to be more entrepreneurial, then when you acquire a company like that, you lose the stars of that company. And so it, it seems like kind of an expensive way to do it, but maybe, but maybe that works. I don't know. I don't think anybody, anybody has really totally figured it out. And so uh, I think that these companies are going to uh, take a, a variety of approaches. They're not going to stop M and A in order to get innovation uh, but that doesn't really solve the problem of how they compete better in their existing businesses, their existing markets. So uh, my recommendation is that they do, uh, you know, that they really, they go down the path of teaching everybody. We teach HR professionals. We teach legal teams. So if you can get those people to act more entrepreneurial, then they're treating their internal customers, their internal employees, their colleagues as customers. And so they deliver services better. Um, exposure for the internal or the back office support functions, exposure to entrepreneurial activity also gives them the ability to support the innovation efforts of their product teams and their innovation teams. So I, I think that while you can't and don't want to turn the big companies into startups, they can all benefit from moving faster and being more customer focused and being more, you know, more agile and evidence driven um, these things that are sort of the cornerstones of lean innovation, they can, they all benefit from that. Um, so I think that the world has changed and I would guess if you over rely on simply acquisition, um, that, you know, you're going to be in trouble. Yeah, I would agree. And, you know, I, I think 
the landscape has just changed from the standpoint of the ability to spin up ideas has never been easier. And, and I think, uh, and you mentioned like the other support systems within the corporation that have to play a, a role. You know, one of the things that we run into is, you know, we talk to um, uh, an internal team and the first thing that they talk about is, well, we got to get compliance involved here <laughs> right away. And if you don't understand uh, all these different pieces of how they come together, it's very difficult to integrate. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so you mentioned that it's changing in the sense that how easy it is to spin up new ideas and, and what that leads to. I mean, that's right on. But what it leads to also is that the customers have that many more options. Right. So they can they're not as loyal as they used to be. They can move from company to company. The amount of knowledge that they have is, you know, incredible. Right. From reviews to, you know, customer uh, feedback to you know, uh, some company blowing it PR wise and it's all over social media. So the, the, the power has shifted to the consumer, which means that, uh, that that's really where the, the customers, the companies have to focus is they have to learn how to understand their, their customers better and, you know, adapt to that. So yeah, it's a new, new world order in that sense. And, and I, uh, I like to point out that the structure of these large enterprises is based upon, the industrial age and well, we're not in the industrial age anymore. So I think that we're going to see some pretty <laughs> wholesale changes here. And the other part of it from the startup perspective is, you know, startups have to stop emulating large enterprises and they need to be able to innovate in their corporate structure and their corporate culture as well. And so you can see the big name startups uh, and even the more established companies, you know, Spotify and, and, and high tech companies like Google and, uh, Zappos, all experimenting with corporate culture and corporate structure because doing it just the way companies have always done it is the wrong approach today. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this has been great. I, I don't want to take a, a ton of your time. I know you're super busy with a lot of things going on. Um, the, the last thing we typically ask our, our guests on the show is what can we do for you? Uh, yeah, leads for large enterprises. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know, let me... You know, uh, the other thing that uh, I thought we could touch on, if you don't mind, and and sure. you can uh, do with this as you may. But what I what I enjoy about uh, and I love about ex- accelerator programs like yours that are regional and outside of Silicon Valley is that people people have to understand how important that is. We can't send everybody to Silicon Valley. So I'm really instrumental or try to be instrumental in building the San Diego startup ecosystem. And perhaps because we're closer to, to Silicon Valley uh, than other places, you know, we have entrepreneurs that bleed up there and, and we have struggles uh, that are that pretty typical outside of Silicon Valley with raising money and all that sort of thing. Um, but what, what creates bubbles is really, if everybody has to go to Silicon Valley, then, you know, you can see what's going on there already with prices and, and salaries and all the rest. Yeah. And, and so it's really important for, uh, for the local economies to figure out how they're going to support the startup ecosystem that stays home and, and the, the, and I can just sort of uh, give advice that I give to a bunch of startups here in San Diego. So the, the, the classic complaint is, is that, you know, you can't get an, there's not money and there's not the hype there's, right. and there's not the hype machine. And what I like to point out is at least here in San Diego, if you can build a, functioning and growing business, if you can prove out part of your business model, you will raise money. And there's an advantage to being in an ecosystem where you have to prove your business model first. So 
Yeah. Point, you know, the first thing is, is that even if you're uh, in the Silicon Valley, if you're not a serial entrepreneur, you're not likely to raise money based upon an idea. So even there, you're better off if you can, you know, start to prove out your business model. But the thing is, is that what happens is, is that if you, if you're, if you're there and you have an idea and you raise some money and then uh, you get on TechCrunch and you get all of the the hoopla about this idea that has not been proven yet that kills companies if it's the wrong idea, which it most likely will be. So again, there's, I think that there's distinct advantages of being outside Silicon Valley. Um, so you can prove the idea and then raise money based upon a functioning business model. Uh, of course, after that, yeah, you're hoping you can go get into the, into the buzz factory. Um, but at least you haven't killed the company by doing that too soon. Right. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I think that's a hard thing for some startup communities to, to reckon with as well, because you, you get, you know, governments or chamber of commerce and those folks, you know, putting in dollars and wanting to keep those startups in their own backyard where, you know, I guess my premise is that the goal is to build great companies. Uh, and if they have to go to the Valley after you, they kind of start here. Um, at least you have connections in that to these companies and people and, and you're more likely to keep them in your own backyard when you, if you help support and build a supportive system around that. So very interesting. Yep. Yeah, it was, I just uh, saw you talking about uh, this changing landscape. I just saw today Slack uh, announced they're having a, they're creating an $80 million fund to invest in other startups. So it's like when the startups are creating startups with money, it's, it, it definitely is changing the landscape. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I mean, I like to, I like to point out that I, I, I'm running inside of my startup, I'm running an internal accelerator program. So yeah, um, okay. it's just eating your own dog food, you know, and, and, and just not assuming that you've got it all figured out. And so running experiments all the time to see if you can cover, uncover something, you know, even bigger. Well, that's it for this episode. Special thanks to this week to Brant Cooper for joining us. Reach out to him on Twitter and let him know how much you enjoyed the interview. If you have a question, you can also reach out to us at the IO podcast. Also, if you have 30 seconds to spare, we would love for you to leave a review on our iTunes page. And while you're there, feel free to subscribe as well. Until next time, go build something big.